Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 52 called The Fall of Africa. In the last episode, we heard about how Aetius fought his way to the top of the greasy pole of Roman politics, outwitting the eagle-eyed Galla Placidia, so that by 433 she was forced to recognise him as the supreme commander-in-chief of the Western Roman army and the effective ruler of the West. The real ruler, at least theoretically, was the Emperor Valentinian III, but in 433 he was still only 14 years old, and in any case, true to the spirit of the Theodosian dynasty, he showed little talent for doing anything other than having other people rule for him, like his mum, Galla Placidia, who acted as his regent. So Aetius had achieved the top job. But Just what was that job? The Western Empire was crumbling before his very eyes, and this new Octavian of Roman politics soon found that any hope he might have had of becoming the next Augustus was to be frustrated by the collapsing fabric of the empire he was trying to save. But Aetius was a fighter, and he would go down fighting, and for that he would find his epithet in history as the last of the Romans. The architects of that destruction were two new emerging superpowers, the Vandal Kingdom of North Africa and the Empire of the Huns, which must count as one of the most powerful empires, albeit short-lived, in history. So, let's return to 433 and consider the immediate problems Aetius faced. In truth, the Western Empire was on the verge of collapse. Britain had long been abandoned, and Roman government in Gaul and Spain was in chaos. Spain had effectively been taken over by the German tribes who'd crossed the Rhine back in late 406, when Stilicho was enjoying his last days of power. And then, in 429, things got decidedly worse for the Romans when the Vandals crossed over the Strait of Gibraltar and into Africa. Although this left something of a power vacuum in Spain, since the Suevi were the only major barbarian group occupying northwestern Spain, Aetius was in no position to try to reconquer the province, since all his resources were trying to save the empire's two last territories outside Italy, North Africa and Gaul. Let me just clarify here what we mean by Roman Africa. Today, of course, Africa is a whole continent, but in Roman times, Africa was referred to as the northwestern edge of that continent, including the modern-day countries of Morocco, Algeria and Tunisia. Egypt was still a part of the Eastern Roman Empire, but wasn't regarded by the Romans as part of Roman Africa. Roman Africa had Carthage as its capital and was one of the most important and wealthiest parts of the empire. It provided the grain supply for Italy as well as about half the Western Empire's tax revenues. Its strategic location meant that it was important for control of the Mediterranean and that made it significant for the Eastern Empire as well. 
and because of that, the Eastern Empire sent an army to defend Africa in 431, led by the general Aspar. Although Aspar had been defeated by Geyseric's Vandals outside Hippo Regius, which subsequently fell to the Vandals, the Eastern Roman army was strong enough to hold the Vandals back from Carthage for the next few years. And because of this, Aetius regarded it as the lesser of his two main problems. The bigger problem for him was Gaul. Gaul was important really because of its strategic location. It didn't have much tax revenue left, but it was right next to Italy. And if Gaul was lost, then the barbarians would be at the gates of Italy. So most of Aetius's efforts were directed towards defending the Romans' last bastion in Gaul, which was the southeastern segment around the Gallic-Roman capital of Arles. You'll remember from the last episode that Aetius had done well between 425 and 432 at keeping the Visigoths and Franks at bay, as well as defeating marauding German Yutungi, who crossed into Raetia. But the barbarian threat was still intense, and Aetius lacked what the Eastern Empire had, a decent army. The Western army had faded away a long time ago when Theodosius I and Stilicho had become reliant on barbarian federati like the Goths, instead of rebuilding the legions as the soldier emperors had done in the crisis of the 3rd century. This wasn't the case in the Eastern Empire, where there was a larger native Roman army. One of the reasons for this difference was money. The Eastern Empire still had a large tax base and could fund a large army. But in the West, tax revenues had plummeted since Britain, Spain and most of Gaul had all ceased paying taxes. Only Italy and North Africa were still paying significant tax revenues to Ravenna. And this meant that Aetius simply couldn't afford to rebuild the Roman army. Instead, he went from one crisis to the next, hiring barbarian mercenaries to do his fighting. One difference compared with Theodosius and Stilicho was that while they had used the Visigoths and other Germans as their mercenaries, Aetius used the Huns. Indeed, his whole career was built around them. First of all, you'll remember Galla Placidia had only given him the command of Gaul because he'd arrived with a Hunnic army to support the usurper John. Then, when Bonifacius defeated him at the Battle of Rimini in 432, he appealed to the Huns again, and his friend, the Hunnic king Rua, either sent an army or promised to send one, which was sufficient to intimidate Galla Placidia into giving him the top job. Now that he had the top job, he was still dependent on Hunnic support. We have very little detail about the Western Roman army at this time, but we know that Huns were present as mercenaries, and Aetius could call on more Hunnic support pretty much whenever he needed it. A striking example of this was with the Burgundians, who were advancing into Western Gaul. 
They were dangerous for Aetius because they could form an alliance with the Visigoths against the Romans. So, in 436, he asked Rua for help against them, and Rua obliged with a series of Hunnic raids directly into Burgundian territory with such horrifying ferocity that one Gallic chronicler recorded that, quote, almost the entire people with their king were destroyed, end quote. The Huns killed the Burgundian king Gundahar, who was a major political figure who'd first led the Burgundians across the Rhine in the mass invasion of Gaul in 406, and then had supported the Roman usurper Jovinus in 411. However, the Burgundians weren't completely annihilated as a race, and settled around Lake Geneva and spread thereafter into Gaul, into what is now, of course, modern Burgundy. The legend of the ferocity of the Hunnic attack is said to have inspired Wagner to write his famous four operas called The Ring of the Nibelung as a sort of operatic version of Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. Aetius also used the Huns to fight the Visigoths. In 436, when the Burgundians were attacking from the east, the Visigoths were advancing from the west. They reached the Roman port of Narbonne on the Mediterranean coast and laid siege to it. The Visigothic king Theodoric was keen to acquire a Mediterranean port and Aetius was keen to stop him. There was heavy fighting between the Visigoths and Romans, which the Romans only got the better of because Aetius was using his Hunnic allies. Narbonne was saved, and the Visigoths were pushed back into Aquitaine, where their king Theodoric agreed to reinstate the Treaty of 418, which Constantius III had made with them, in which they agreed to stay in Aquitaine and be Roman federati, even supplying troops if asked. So, nice work, Aetius. But the question has to be, why did the Huns agree to do Aetius's dirty work? We know that he had good relations with Rua, but was there more to it? Yes, there was a lot more to it. Historians think not only was Aetius paying the Huns, but probably because the Western Empire didn't have a lot of gold to spare, he was also giving them territory. Indeed, he seems to have given them the Roman province of Pannonia, which was a large area including modern Western Hungary and Slovakia. This was right next to where the Huns lived on the Hungarian plains. So, the Huns were doing very well out of their alliance with the Romans. They were getting paid handsomely and receiving territory on top. Was this a sustainable Roman policy? I don't think so. And you have to wonder whether Aetius was really just mortgaging the Roman Empire to the Huns to buy himself victories in the short term. But whether what Aetius was doing in Gaul was sustainable or not, the Western Empire was about to suffer a major disaster. This was the loss of Africa. As mentioned earlier in 432, the Vandal offensive along the North African seaboard had ground to a halt. The Eastern Roman army led by Aspar was strong enough to stop it advancing on Carthage. This was the case even when the Romans were weakened by the civil war which erupted in 432 between Bonifacius and Aetius. You'll recall that Bonifacius had been fighting the Vandals with Aspar, but he was recalled by Galla Placidia to replace 
replace Felix and oust Aetius. Clearly, this wasn't good news for the defence of Carthage, since some of the African army almost certainly went with him to Italy. As we covered in the last episode, the result was the Battle of Rimini, where Bonifacius defeated Aetius but died of his wounds. Aetius then fled to the Huns and returned, either with a Hunnic army or the promise of one if needed from Rua, to persuade Galla Placidia to reinstate him. This Roman civil war must have been very welcome for Geyseric, but still Aspar's eastern army was strong enough to prevent him from taking Carthage. Indeed, in recognition of the vital role Aspar was playing in defending Carthage, Valentinian III appointed him consul for the west. As you know, the position of consul dated back to the days of the Roman Republic, half a millennium before, but it was still used, even in this period, as an honorary title conferred on important and successful people. What's interesting about Aspar's nomination is that it was extremely unusual for the Western court to confer the consulship on an Eastern general, and that shows just how dependent the Western Empire was on the East's military support. But in 434, Aspar was forced to leave Africa to concentrate on the growing Hunnic threat to the Eastern Empire along the Danube. You might have thought this would be Geyseric's opportunity to take Carthage, but there must have been sufficient Eastern Roman troops still left in Africa to prevent that happening, since in 435 a peace treaty was signed between the Vandals and Romans. This treaty is very intriguing because the records about it are thin and we can only really guess at what was going on at the time. What we do know is that the Vandals' seizure of African territory was recognised by the Romans in exchange for their becoming allies or federati. This reminds me of the peace treaty made back in 382 between the Goths and Theodosius I, which was arguably the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. Why Geyseric wanted peace has never been entirely clear. Presumably, even though Aspar had gone home, the eastern Roman army in Carthage was still strong enough to prevent the Vandals from taking the city. Geyseric may also have been worried about provoking the eastern empire into sending further troops against him, as it would indeed do some decades later. He was serious enough about the peace treaty with the Romans to send his son, Hunneric, to Rome as a hostage. He was probably also given a Roman military title, like Dux. In Rome, the treaty was celebrated as a victory, but the reality was very different. The truth was that yet another portion of the empire had been given to barbarian invaders as a stopgap until they wanted more. Peace with the Vandals lasted for quite a long time, long enough for Aetius to concentrate on defeating the Burgundians and Visigoths, but then, in October 439, after four and a half years of peace, Geyseric suddenly launched a major attack on Carthage. Again, our records are frustratingly thin about what happened, but it seems that he took the city by tricking its defenders to open the gates, perhaps using his Roman position as dukes of Mauritania and Numidia, he persuaded the Roman garrison to allow him entry into the city. Certainly there doesn't seem to have been a siege of Carthage or a battle outside it. 
Once inside the city, our sources are confusing. While there is mention of violence against the population, there's also reference to this being directed mainly against the ruling class and the church. This has led some historians to speculate that there could have been pro-vandal sympathisers who cooperated with them in the capture of the city. This suggests many African Romans were disenchanted with rule from Italy. This could have been because absentee Italian landlords were common and a source of local resentment. Many Roman senators had extensive lands in Africa, which they never visited and were happy just to extract the profits from. These were now given to the Vandal nobility. It seems that many Romans were not unhappy transferring their allegiance to the Vandals. Some historians criticise Aetius for taking his eye off the ball. The allegation is that he became overly obsessed with the Visigothic War and neglected North Africa. There's clearly some truth in this, and it wasn't just Aetius, but the Eastern Empire also took its eye off the ball. The Eastern Romans had defended Carthage so well to begin with, only to be distracted by the Hunnic threat along the Danube. The impression we have is that both halves of the empire were lulled into a false sense of security, that Geyseric was their friend and not an enemy. Geyseric deserves full credit for this. He played his cards very well. He tricked the Romans by accepting the title of Dux and pretending to be their ally. Alaric had played a similar strategy in the lead-up to his sack of Rome. Finally, what was it that influenced Geyseric's timing? One reason could be that he was worried about Aetius's success in Gaul. In the same year that Geyseric took Carthage, the Goths made peace with Aetius. We know that at some point prior to this, Theodoric's daughter, whose name has not been recorded, married Geyseric's son, Hunneric, thereby cementing a Vandal-Gothic alliance. We also know that at some unspecified point, she was returned by Geyseric to her father with her nose and ears cut off. This distasteful mutilation was said to be because she tried to poison Huneric. More likely is that she was the victim of a Vandal-Gothic disagreement over the Goths' treaty with Aetius. Geyseric might have been afraid they would join with the Romans against him and decided to strike against Carthage before this happened. Whatever the truth about Carthage's fall, it was a devastating blow for both halves of the Roman Empire. The Western Empire had lost its grain supply and maybe as much as half of its remaining tax revenues. Realising their mistake, the two sides of the empire rushed to assemble an expeditionary force to recover Carthage. Aetius sent as many legions as he could south to Sicily to join a large army from Constantinople that sailed to the island. A vast fleet of 1,100 ships gathered to transport the combined imperial army to Africa and teach Geyseric a lesson. But the expedition never sailed. In 441, the Eastern Empire found itself facing a new crisis and needed to recall its troops from Sicily. The reason was the Huns had crossed the Danube. A new Hunnic leader had risen to power, and his name was one that we all know. It was Attila the Hun. (laughs) 
And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use, since that's the best way for me to promote this podcast. Also, do sign up for my newsletter on all things Roman, which you can find on my website at nickholmesauthor.com. And in the next episode, which will again be in two weeks' time on the 25th of February, since I'm still working on the fast-approaching publication of my second book, we'll continue with the story of Attila the Hun. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>